0: Morning. We're going to be continuing our recap through the book of Genesis, at least as far as we've gotten before COVID. Uh, If you guys were here last week, Pastor Lance, he covered basically the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. He talked about creation, the goodness of creation, and the fall, and how the fall has affected every aspect of our lives. And so we're going to continue on by looking back at the life of Abraham. We're going to look at the ways in which God worked through the life of Abraham. But we're going to do it in a really unique way today. We're going to look at the life of Abraham through the eyes of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. So if your Bibles turn to Romans chapter 4, that's where we will be. And in Romans chapter 4, we get this unique insight. We get a Holy Spirit-inspired Bible study from an apostle on the Old Testament, where the Apostle Paul is going to teach us about the gospel according to Abraham, the gospel of Abraham. So I'm going to read the entire chapter. You can follow along on the screens, or you can follow along in your Bibles. But this is Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How, then, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the promise of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're amazed by these promises in your word. Help us to understand them through the eyes of the Apostle Paul and by your Holy Spirit. Would you open up our eyes to see this truth that stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis. Help us to believe and receive the gospel of Abraham. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wanted to boil down the entire Bible down to two words, if you wanted to summarize God's message in the Bible in two words, it'd be this. Trust me. Trust me. God's message to his people is, trust me. But trust is a very difficult thing to come by, especially in our world. I think all of us are feeling that. Who do we trust? Do we trust the media? Do we trust politicians? Can we trust each other? Can we trust anything that we hear? And in our own personal lives, we've all felt the sting of broken promises, the heartache of disappointments and letdowns, not only from people that we trust, but maybe most often being let down in ourselves, promises we make to ourselves that we fall short of. It's very difficult to trust anything in a world that is full of a lot of uncertainty. Life is uncertain, and perhaps right now is the most uncertain time in most of our lives. And you wonder if there's anything in life you can trust. Is there anything in this world or anyone that you can trust? And of course, the Sunday school answer is you can trust God. But that's the truth. That's a foundational truth to the Christian confession. That all flesh will fade, grass will fade, everything will fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. But what does that mean? What does that mean for us? You have to remember, Moses wrote the book of Genesis for a particular audience. He wrote Genesis to the second generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt. He wrote this book for the children of freed slaves who are wandering in the desert who are following a cloud of dust by day and a bright pillar of fire at night. A giant flame guiding them, which represents the presence of God. What do the children of slaves need to know? What do a wandering group of tribes in the desert around massive superpowers around them, what do they need to know? They need to know that their God is with them, that their God is faithful, that their God is powerful, that their God created all things by the word of his power, and that their God has bound himself to them by giving them promises, by giving them promises. They are the children of Abraham who will receive a land And through them, through God's people, they will bless all the families of the world. We're not Israelites in the desert. We're, We're not people following a cloud. What link do we have with Moses and with Abraham and with Jacob and Isaac and all the people that we read in the book of Genesis? What is our common ground? Our common ground is God himself. Abraham's God is our God. Jacob's God is our God. Moses' God is our God. Israel's God is our God. Different culture, different times, different circumstances, same God, same promises, same message to us. Trust me. Trust me. But do we know what God has promised to us? Do we know what we have as an inheritance from God as His people? This is why we need Romans 4. Because in Romans 4 we see three promises that God has given to us as His people for us to believe, to trust. In a world of uncertainty, in a world full of broken promises, these are three pillars Three promises that we can rest our entire lives on. First, God promises us that He will forgive our sins. And second, God promises us that He will bless the world through us. And finally, God promises that He will bring us from death to life. Those are three promises for us to believe. Let's look at the first one. God promises He will forgive our sins. Think about Abraham. By the time God calls Abraham and says, you're my guy, I'm going to give you a family, a nation's going to come through you, and through your family you're going to bless all the families of the world. I'm going to give you a great name. You're going to be my instrument of redemption. Abraham, when he receives this call, is 75 years old. And he's pulled out of the land of Ur from a culture of paganism. Abraham has been worshiping false gods for 75 years. That's from the time World War II ended till now. That's a lot of sinning. That's a lot of idolatry. This is not the first round draft pick when you want to redeem the world and this is the guy you pick. That is a lot of rebellion that he is coming into this relationship with God with. So how can Abraham walk with God? How can Abraham be the guy? How can Abraham be righteous, morally pure before God with that massive track record of idolatry? And Paul tells us, Abraham believed in the God who justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. What does that mean? What does it mean to justify? It means to count somebody as righteous. To say, you're in the right. That you match up to my standard. You are morally righteous. But based on Abraham's moral track record, based on his 75 years, he's not going to pass the test, right? All that time in rebellion, he will not be justified if he's basing it on his own moral track record. So instead, he trusts in God, believing that God, that God's target demographic is sinners, that the kinds of people God uses are the ungodly, the unrighteous, the people who who turn away from him, the people who run from God, those are the people that God runs after. And the way that God makes Abraham righteous is by giving Abraham a righteous status as a gift. Abraham can't, by his own power, fulfill God's standard. And so God, by His grace gives him a perfect moral record. And Paul goes on and he explains this. He says, if Abraham could look at his life and go, well, this is, I mean, God, you picked a a great guy. You're going to be really glad you chose me. If he could look to himself for any reason why God chose him, he would have a reason to boast. He would have some portion of his own salvation that he could take credit for. And Paul says it's kind of like a person who, who receives a wage for his work, right? If, if, if you go to work and, you're, and you get paid a certain amount an hour and you work the hours you're supposed to work, your check is not a gift. Your check is your due. It is a payment for what you yourself have earned. But Paul says salvation is not like that. Salvation is a gift given to the one who doesn't work but trusts in God. That's the difference. One system, you get what you deserve. You put in the work, you get what your work earns. But salvation is about receiving as a gift what you do not deserve. God's salvation is not a paycheck It is a gift. It's a gift that we receive by faith, by trust, by placing all of our weight, not on our own ability or our own moral record, but in God, in God's free gift to us. If you think about it this way, faith is like the band of a ring. If you look at a ring, the valuable part of a ring is the diamond, not the band. All the band does is hold on to the diamond, to what's valuable. So our faith isn't magical. Our faith is holding on to the person who saves us, to Christ. Christ is the gift. He's the diamond given to us, and we grab on to him by our trust in him alone. And when we receive Christ, we receive everything that belongs to Jesus, including his perfect moral record. And so in the gospel, God counts Jesus as if he lived our life, and he counts us as if we lived his life. We can't earn it, we receive it as a gift. And we see this because Jesus gives a parable in Luke 18 about two people. He says, I want you to imagine a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisees were sort of the Jewish religious elite during Jesus' time, and tax collectors were hated by everybody. They were seen as people who compromised with Rome. Nobody liked them. They were the scourge of the earth. And he goes, I want you to see these two people and I want you to tell me which one is justified. Who's in the right before God? And the Pharisee goes, this is why I'm in the right before God. I tithe. I fast. I'm a moral guy. Plus, I'm better than this guy. And the tax collector says, I'm a sinner. God have mercy. And Jesus says, The tax collector is the one who's justified. He's the one who's righteous. The Pharisee looks at himself for some reason why he is righteous before God. The tax collector looks away from himself toward God. He has no standing on his own, he has to look away. From himself, one looked in, the other looked up. Faith looks away from self and to God. That's the essence of faith. Robert Murray McShane, he once said, uh, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Every time you look at yourself, your record, your sins, all that stuff, make sure you take ten looks to Christ. But here's the problem. This is why it's so hard. We love to look at ourselves. We love to stare at ourselves. Maybe some of you, you actually literally like staring at yourself. We don't believe that we can be happy unless somewhere in the fine print, somewhere in the budget, there's some percentage of our salvation that we can point to ourselves and take credit for. Even if it's 1%. We're hungry for that 1%. We want to say... Lord, look at how conservative I am. Look at how much theological knowledge I have. Look at all these sins I don't commit. Look at how woke I am. Look at how I'm part of this political party. We homeschool. We do this. Have I offended enough people yet? This is is the tendency of the human heart to try to find something in us that we can take credit for, for why God would show His affection to us, why God would choose us, why God would love us, why God would justify us. We look inside, we compare ourselves to other people. We all have this tendency. We don't think we'll ever be happy without it. But, Paul quotes King David in the Psalms. And King David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count against in his sin. David's saying, by the Holy Spirit, you want to be happy? You know what the blessed man is? You know where joy comes from? Not by looking in, but by looking out, by looking up. The happy man is the man who has nothing in himself to commend himself to God. His whole life is dependent upon the work of God on his behalf, that God has covered all of his sin. Every last drop, from top to bottom. This is the scandal of grace. The scandal of the gospel. If you want to happen, you're not going to find any of that in yourself. You're just going to find a bunch of despair, a bunch of failure, a bunch of sin. But God does not want you to look there. One of the gifts of the gospel is the freedom to get over yourself. God wants you to get over yourself. And I mean you might say, you know, you're like, but I'm a mess. I got all this sin. It's like, we know. We see it. We know. But that's not the point. It's not about you. It's never about you and what you could do for yourself. Where are you looking? We miss this sometimes. God Saves sinners. Those are the people, those are the only people he saves. Sinners. Bad sinners. People like you and me. Those are the people he's after. So where are you looking? Are you looking at your own performance? Are you looking at anything in yourself? Or are you looking at God's promise? His promise of righteousness, His promise of forgiveness. That's where he wants your attention to be focused. But his promises go beyond that. God also promises that he will bless the world through us. He's going to bless the world through us. The gospel is not just good news for our vertical relationship with God, but it's good news for our horizontal relationship with one another. There is a social aspect to the gospel. Remember, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome. Rome is filled with new converts, Jewish converts and Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts. Two cultures, two people groups, two languages, all smashed together in little homes trying to figure this thing out. And there are all kinds of social issues that are popping up. And what Paul wants these Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles to understand is that they have a unity that is deeper than blood. Deeper than culture, deeper than language, that they have a common heritage that binds them together. It's their faith. Their faith binds them together. One of the earliest controversies, if you read Galatians, if you read Acts, you're going to see one of the earliest controversies is the issue of circumcision, and you heard that word repeated multiple times in Romans 4, circumcision and uncircumcision, And the issue is, circumcision was a sign that you were part of the people of Israel. Abraham, his family, was marked out from all the nations of the world by circumcision. So the logic is, if you're going to be part of Abraham's family, if you're going to be justified, if you're going to be part of God's people, you too need to be circumcised. Isn't that what the Old Testament says? Isn't that what Abraham did? In other words, it's not just enough to believe in Christ, but you also have to become Jewish. You also have to become Jewish. But this is what's amazing about Paul. Paul is such a careful Bible reader. He flips over back to Genesis and he goes, actually, when was Abraham justified? When was Abraham counted right? When did Abraham become God's man? Was it after he was circumcised or before? This is Before that Abraham was one of God's people for years before he was circumcised. So the mark of what it means to be part of God's people is not circumcision, but faith. And he says his circumcision was a visible sign of an an invisible reality he already possessed. That circumcision was a sign of the faith in God that he already had, had which means that God always intended that Abraham would be the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And this is why in Galatians 3.8, Paul says that God, listen to that, he says that God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham when he told him, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That it was always about faith, not about an external marking, All the way back, to Abraham. How will the nations be blessed? Not by sharing Abraham's blood, but by sharing his faith. That's why Paul says it's to those who walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. And this means that at the heart of the gospel, at the center of the gospel, is a call to the nations. That's not an extra add-on. This is the plan from the very beginning, a call to bring the knowledge of God across cultures and languages to the nations of the world. It's been said that the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. That's very true. When Jesus said to his disciples, what did he say? I want you to go out and teach and baptize and make disciples of all the nations, of all the peoples in the world. Those are the marching orders he gives to the church. But that is not a new mission. That is a fulfillment of an old mission that stretches all the way back to Abraham. Through your family, I will bless all the families of the world. And notice that in verse 13 of Romans 4, Paul, when he reads the story of Abraham, he expands the promise. He says that Abraham's descendants aren't just going to inherit a little plot of land in the Middle East. He says, you will inherit the world. The whole world. He expands the promise. And this is the family that will stretch across the nations and inherit the earth. Abraham's family. And we are Abraham's family by faith. And if we're Abraham's family by faith, that means we must continue Abraham's mission. But notice how that informs how the mission goes forward. Through your family to all the families. From families, through families, to families. This is not to discount the work of single people. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest missionaries, probably the greatest missionary ever to live. He was a single man. There have been many godly, single people who have pushed forward the kingdom of God. But the normal pattern, the most common pattern we see is from families through families to families. If you look in the book of Acts, what do we see solidifies the core of the church? A person is saved and then their household. Households are saved. Anytime you plant a church wherever you are to ensure that the faith is passed down through generations, you need strong family units. You need Household. Sometimes in the church we pit, like, are we focused on the family or are we focused on mission and outreach? We kind of pit them together. Are we going to be inward focus or outward focus? Are we going to strengthen marriages or are we going to push towards mission work? And we should not split those two apart or put them at odds. They're bound up together, right? We need strong families in the church. We need men to lead their families. We need husbands to lead their wives and husbands to. and and fathers to, to lead their children. We need mothers to raise up their children in the fear of the Lord, to raise strong Christians in households. And then we need those families to open up their doors and invite the nations in, to open up their wallets and to support the work of missions, to open up their lives to their communities. The family unit is not opposed to the mission of God. It is right there within it. Don't pit the strengthening of families against the work of missions. When you think about missions, when you think about sending the gospel across cultures, across people groups, especially to the unreached, especially to closed nations, that is grueling hard work. There's no romanticism about that. This requires the kind of faithfulness that will probably not see immediate results. And this is by design. When we talk about missions, we have to live by faith, not sight. We have to live by faith in the promise of God and not pragmatism. It's going to take a team of missionaries probably their whole lifetime to maybe plant a church of 10 people. I mean, that's the long-term view especially if you want to convert households, if you want to have a solid foundation for a church. But remember, Abraham never saw the fulfillment of these promises. And he lived to be over 100. And his, his life was marked by waiting and by trusting in the words of God over what he could see. If he based his faithfulness on the results he could see, he would have quit a long time ago. So when we send, train, and equip and support missionaries. It's not because we have some secret strategy. It's not because we we have, you know, a special way to do things that other people don't have. It's because we trust the promise of God. That this is at the heart of God's mission. Because God promises to bless all the families of the world through us, through the church. And we have to trust that the heart of God is that God wants all families, neighborhoods, societies, and cultures, and nations to bow the knee to Christ. That's why we support and send missionaries and pray for missionaries because we've got the long-term view in mind because we know that God's going to be faithful to it and that we can keep supporting even though we may not see a lot of immediate fruit. We know that this is where everything's headed. The question is, do we really want that? Will we take God at His word and live out of that faith and align ourselves with the mission that God has put forth and be the church that is the vessel to carry that mission outward? That's the promise. Through you, I'm going to bless the world. Through you, I'm going to create a multinational people of God. Finally, God will bring us from death to life. This is one of the most incredible insights that Paul gives to us from Abraham's story. Abraham is told that he will bless the nations through his family, but there's only one, well, one significant problem with that. Abraham can't have kids. Abraham is 100 years old. It says that his body is basically dead. And his wife is too old to have children. Her her womb is barren. Abraham means father of many nations. Can you imagine that? Walking around, this old man in the desert. You meet different merchants, different people. They go, what's your name? He goes, oh, my name is father of nations. Really? Where are your children? You can't have any. It almost seems cruel if this wasn't a promise of God. It's a tough name to explain. But if it depends on God, then his weakness is absolutely where God wants him to be. If Abraham looks at himself, he sees a dead body. He looks at his wife, he sees a womb that can no longer give life. A dead womb. But where does he look? He looks to God, who is the one who gives life to dead things and brings into existence things from nothing. Abraham believed that God could bring life out of Sarah's womb. That's what he believed against all hope, against all of his circumstances. And not only did he believe, but what does Paul say? He says that his faith and his worship grew stronger lived by faith, not by sight. If this were up to Abraham, he would no longer need the the, the promises of God. He would no longer need to trust. He wouldn't need faith because he could handle it. But God is purposely placed in a situation where all he has is the promise of God. I will give you a son. I will give you a family. How my my body and, and my wife and I'm old and and God says you're looking at yourself. I'm the God who brings life out of death. And if the promises are up to God, then they're as good as done. They're guaranteed to Abraham and to his offspring. Why does God send trials to us? Why does God let us teeter on the brink? Why does God have, any, have so many cliffhangers in our life? Why does he Why does he ruffle up all our plans? because he wants us to trust him. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, he says that we were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And he says that the reason that we were so burdened and so overwhelmed was so that we would no longer trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul's back is against the wall. Paul is out of his depth. It's, it's bigger than him. And he knows this is exactly where God wants me to be. This is exactly how God works. Paul and Abraham, they're not enrolled in a special graduate program for Christians where they get certain access to promises and we don't. These are the same promises to us. This is why I love, Paul says, when Abraham was counted righteous, when Abraham was given these promises, it was not written for his sake alone, right? It was also written for our sake, What do we believe? We believe that God brought life out of death. We believe that God raised his son. Abraham believed in a resurrection of his wife's womb. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's how we share in the faith of Abraham. That's the good news we offer to the world. Jesus died for our trespasses and was raised up for our justification. So, when we preach the gospel to the world, we're not preaching re education or revolution or anything like that. We are preaching resurrection. We are saying that God can create a new creation. He can bring a new creation out of this old one. We are saying that He can take dead sinners, enslaved to their sin, and give them a new life and raise them up to a new life. That you can be a new person. That's the message. It's transformative. And that one day our bodies will die, but will be raised in glory. Like Jesus. We preach life from death. And that is the promise that He gives to us by faith. But how do we know? I mean, that's a lot is the fear of death is real and we feel it, and that is a lot to put our weight on. How do we know God will be faithful to all of these promises? In Genesis 15, Abraham is asking God, when is this? I don't have a child yet. I'm getting old. How am I going to know? All I wanted was a son. You promised him to me. Lord, will you be faithful? And God strengthens his faith by entering into a covenant with him, by entering into a bond. And in that covenant, he gives him a physical ceremony. He says, Abraham, this is how you know I'm going to be faithful. I want you to do this ceremony for me. He says, I want you to grab a bunch of animals, and I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to put them across from each other in rows so that their blood is in between. And this was a common ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony. What would happen is a Lord would tell his servants... I want you to do this covenant ceremony. The servant is going to walk through the blood, through the animals, as if to say, Master, if I am disloyal to you, if I am unfaithful to you, then let what happened to these animals happen to me. If I am unfaithful, let my blood be shed. So that's what God is doing with Abraham. Abraham, make the animals apart, path of blood, and I want you to walk through it. Except, In this instance, Abraham doesn't walk through it. A floating torch passes through the blood. A floating pillar of fire. When do we last hear about a floating pillar of fire? Leading Israel at night the promised land. It is the presence of God. And in that ceremony, God says, Abraham, if you are unfaithful, let my blood be shed. Let the curses on these animals fall on me. And this old man, in the middle of the desert, sees the gospel. He sees the gospel. My blood for you. It's the same gospel that we believe. That by the blood of Christ, God forgives sins. By the blood of Christ, God purchases a family from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. That by His blood, we can be brought out of death to life. How do we know that God will be faithful to these promises? Because he gave his life for us. For all the promises of God in Christ are what? Yes and amen. Why are we in the situations we're in? So that we may learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So where are, you, where are you looking for your hope? Where's your family looking? Is the church just another social obligation? Just another word for community organizing? Or is it the vessel of God's mission to the world? Are we people with a message of resurrection? Or are we just as anxious and fearful as the world around us who doesn't know God? This is what we need. God's, trust me. God's promises are sure. They are true. They are real. And they're for you. You, you. Not idealized you. Not you 10 years down the line when you have it together. You, right now, in the middle of all of it. In the middle of all of the mess. These promises are for you to receive by faith. So receive it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're amazed by your gracious promises to us, by how you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we confess that oftentimes our faith is weak, and we're prone to wander. We're prone to trust in anything or anyone but you. And yet, despite all of that, you continue to shower your mercies upon us. That no matter how great sin is, your grace is greater, more powerful. Lord, help us to look away from ourselves to you. Help us to be faithful to trust you in the spread of your gospel to the nations. And help us to rejoice in the truth of the resurrection. Lord, we fall in line with the heritage of Abraham. When we look at ourselves, we see failures, we see disappointments, we see our flaws. But when we look at you, we find mercy, steadfastness, kindness, forgiveness, and love. And this is our strength. This is our hope. Help us to believe it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.